Well, howdy. Am I on? Well, howdy. Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Regen. If we haven't met, my name is Aaron. If it's your first time here with us, or if you have not yet signed up for the Reconnect, there's a table back there. We've got sunnies and some pens and some mugs. May have oversold the sunglasses, but we have the other things. And you can also sign up to get our weekly email, which is going to keep you informed on what's going on. Um, if you have your phone out right now, you can check in. And for every check-in that we receive on Facebook, we will generate a donation to the Bella Women's Center this month. A couple of announcements. Our night of prayer is coming up on May 30th. Get ready. It's going to be great. Uh, feasts. The Bilers are having a feast on June 2nd. Yes. What is a feast? That's a great question. So a feast, we just get together. Everybody brings some food. Um, you'll probably want to look to them for, like, if there's some kind of food theme. Uh, we're going to get together, hang out, and uh, that's pretty much it. So in addition to that, we have summer circles. They're coming. You will get more information about them when we have more information about them. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pass around these offering buckets. Um, and pray real quick, so if you'd like to pray with me. Jesus, thank you for, um, thank you for today, and for this beautiful weather, and for the awesome opportunity that we have to come together and to worship you. Um, we thank you that just as, like, the seasons are now warm and changing, um, that you are also doing things in our lives. Um, we're just really excited about everything that you're doing and really excited about partnering with that. Amen. Jesus, we are here in this space and we are here in the present, but our eyes are also looking forward to what is yet to come, to a time where death is no more, when tears are a memory, when you bring us home, where you usher in a whole new creation for us to enjoy with you forever. God, while we wait for you to do that, we give you thanks that by your spirit we have strength and perseverance as we wait with expectant hope. And so Jesus, we pray uh, this morning as we hear from scripture that we would become more faithfully your people in this place for this city, for this community, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Go ahead and have a seat. That is the song my wife walked down the aisle to at our wedding. And uh, there's some imagery in that song as us being the bride of Christ. Oh, kids, you can go to Sunday school, sorry. You guys can go back. Is Kayla back there? Kayla? Oh, boy, okay. Malachi, lead the way. Uh, let's try this, Dan. There's some uh, wedding imagery there. And uh, that's because we are the bride of Christ. Not yet, Dano. Oh, you got to click that join button up there. Trying something new today. Um, starting a new series, King of Hearts. By the way, Jenna Byler does all of our graphics, and I think she does a great job. So high five her next time you see her. Uh, 
I am not easy to work with on this front because I know what I want. I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. And uh, often not until I see it. But we're starting this new series. Um, my son's baptism, too, by the way, is this afternoon at Grace Campus. If you come here, that will be sad for you. At Grace Campus at 2.30 if you can join us. But that's what's going on today in my life. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, go there. 1 Samuel chapter 2 as we start this series called King of Hearts. Um, I remember this time of year in the year 2007. I, had been, I was about to graduate from high school. I was excited to go to this place called Moody Bible Institute. I was raised in a really good Bible-believing church here locally, but I was excited to go and learn more and make friends. And I remember clearly when I got to school, one of my first classes was Old Testament survey. It was at 8 o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays. This was at a time in my life when 8 o'clock in the morning felt early, right? That's sleeping in now that we have a child. Um, We had to read the entire Old Testament in that semester, uh, which is a lot of reading. And I remember sitting through Old Testament survey and coming to terms with the fact that the Old Testament is telling one story for the first time. I remember understanding that story for the first time, and I remember being really mad that nobody had ever told me this before. I was raised in a church, but why had nobody helped me step into this story that through Jesus was mine? I remember sitting in, of all places, Systematic Theology 1, which sounds more boring than it is, We were studying theology proper, and I remember tears coming to my eyes as I started to grapple with the nature of God. And again, thinking, why hasn't anybody told me this? Here was this book that I'd had in my room my whole life, and nobody had ever stopped and slowed down enough to tell me what was going on in this story that Jesus invites me to be a part of. And so since that time, I have just been unable to escape the Bible. I've been unable to escape the Bible. I have been unable to be released of being captivated by its narrative twists and its turns of phrases, and it's captured my imagination. I enjoy reading the Bible. I love teaching the Bible, and that's why I'm really excited about getting into what we're getting into today, uh, because we are doing something that we've not done as a community in a long time. In fact, many of you might be new to this um, because we've been in a little bit of a growth spurt lately, but it's our usual practice to binge watch entire books of the Bible at a time. So since Regen has been in existence, we have taught the book of John, we have taught the book of Exodus, we have taught the book of Ruth, we have taught the book of James, we have taught other ones that I can't remember, the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the next two years, which I said last week and you all nervously laughed, uh, over the next two years, we're going to just binge watch First and Second Samuel. Now, mercifully, you were on the Kyle Tennant slash Hulu commercials plan, okay? So there will be commercial breaks throughout the series. We're going to do a series on spiritual gifts. We're going to do a series on um, using the Bible for spiritual formation. What, do we, what does the Bible do for us as apprentices of Jesus? I'm going to do a series on the biblical case for women as pastors and preachers. Um, I'm going to do a series... Uh, on more on evangelism and making that gesture and posture, but the core of the curriculum for us as a faith community for the next two years is the books of First and Second Samuel. And so what I want to do today 
is kind of maybe get a little academic or a little dry and teach you a little bit about like the background of First and Second Samuel, the flow of First and Second Samuel, and then we're going to look at one text in particular, a text that actually sets the tone for the whole book. And so let's start with this idea of what is the book of First and Second Samuel all about? Well, the first thing to know is that the division of one and two Samuel in your Bible is artificial. When the original document of it, it's one long scroll. Uh, and it was divided in two, partly due to scroll length and partly when we started printing lexicons, which are books, we needed to divide it in two. But it's one story. First Samuel and one, and one, one Samuel and two Samuel are one book telling one story. And this is my attempt to summarize what the book is about. Oh, Addie, friend, hi. Um, Man, if you don't like babies, you do not like our church. That's just where it's at, because that's so... Hi, Addie. Um, This is the purpose of the book of Samuel. Despite their outright rejection of his kingship, the Lord still seeks to be the king of his people's hearts and to move his redemptive purposes forward. God opposes Saul and David, I forgot to put, in their pride. But when David humbles himself, the Lord exalts him. The book invites us to look forward to the messianic king, Jesus, who is God's very own heart and who will bring God's kingdom and blessing to all nations. That is my attempt to take the almost 50 chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel and get them condensed into what is this about. This is where we get this series titled, The King of Hearts, because in 1 and 2 Samuel, God is competing for his people's affections. He is competing against uh, other kings, lesser kings. He is competing against lesser desires to enthrone himself in his people's heart, despite even their outright rejection of him. And as always, this book points forward to Jesus. Jesus looks at the entire Old Testament and says, this is about me. And so I'll show you later on in the sermon about how that is true. But of course, the question has to do with how do we get here? So you know the Bible starts with this book called Genesis, and there's the other books like, how do we get here? What is the chronology of the Bible that makes this real? So the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 when God creates humanity as co-rulers over creation. That's what it means to be created in God's image. It means that we join him in ruling and reigning over over God's creation. Sin enters the world through disobedience and creation is plunged into chaos and curse. And in response to that chaos and curse, God hatches a plan to bring blessing where there is curse. And he says that he's going to do that through one family. He creates a covenant people through a guy named Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And through this people, God says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is replacing curse with blessing, and he is doing it through the covenant people of Abraham. Now, the covenant people of Abraham leave the land of Israel, and they are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, 10 generations. But you'll remember last week when we looked at the book at, at Hannah, the text says the Lord remembered Hannah. We see that function also in the book of Exodus. The Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses leads, people through the, Red, leads the people of God through the Red Sea out of slavery, and then to a mountain called Sinai where God reinstitutes covenant with them through the law, the books of Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Israel is called to take possession of the land of Canaan, 
which is promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so under Joshua, who is Moses' protege, they go to war against the nations living in there. And if you have ethical dilemmas about God's people and about the God of love commanding his people to put entire people groups to death, welcome to it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We can talk about what exactly that means later. But under Joshua, the people of Israel take incomplete possession of the land. They take possession of some of it, but not all of it. They disobey, which leads to this chaotic period known as judges. Um, Because they did not subdue these other people groups around them, those other people groups often subdue portions or even all of the Israelites. And so they call out to God for a savior. God raises up a judge, someone like Deborah or Samson. They deliver the people. They live in obedience for a little while and then slip back into disobedience, which causes them to be subjugated by another people group, which causes them to cry out for a deliverer, which causes God to raise up a judge, which causes their deliverance, which causes their obedience, which then eventually slips into disobedience and then subjugation. If you read the book of Judges, it is like riding a merry-go-round because that's all it is. it's, It's the same cycle for all these chapters. And the chaos of the book of Judges paves the way and the narrative for order to be brought through a king to show that this randomly selected person who rules and reigns for a period of time is not enough, that we need something different, even though that something different is somewhat outside the bounds of what God wants. That's where we get to the books of Samuel. In Samuel, Israel rejects Yahweh as their king. We'll get to this in 1 Samuel 8. They say, give us a king like the other nations have. And so monastic and dynastic monarchy is set up in Israel, which means under David, there's a dynasty of all of David's, you know, descendants will be sitting on the throne. What is interesting is, you know, we just sang this song about Jesus sitting on a throne. Why is it important that Jesus sits on a throne? It's important because David in the Old Testament is promised that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. One of his descendants will rule forever. This is why Jesus is called son of David so often in the Gospels, because Jesus is the new David come to bring order to a chaotic world and now sits on his father's David's throne in heaven. This was the spiritual fulfillment of that promise until Jesus comes to rule in person sometime in the future. Now, uh, there's three kings uh, that do somewhat well. Saul, well, he's rejected in this book. Then David. David's son Solomon likes women and likes money a little too much for his own good. And so through his foolishness, even though he builds a permanent temple for people to, the people of God to worship, uh, when he hands his kingdom off to his son, the kingdom is divided and ultimately destroyed. But where our focus will be is in the book of Samuel, about the setting up of this monarchy, the rejection of Yahweh's kingship, and we'll focus on two kings in particular, Saul and David. Um, I don't know if you ever watched The Bible Project, uh, the Bible Project are some really handy videos online by a company, by an organization, a group that I really like. Helps explain the Bible briefly. This is their summary of First and Second Samuel, uh, which I've kind of hijacked for my purposes. But we posted the videos online uh, on our social media this week. Really would encourage you to watch them because it's just a helpful way to get that twenty thousand foot overview of a book, so you actually know what the heck is happening, right? Um, because here's the deal: when we when we talk about, you know this, the chronology of the Bible, what often happens is we forget the Bible is telling one story, right? 
because either in Sunday school growing up or you're just new to Jesus, you're just picking up. I mean, some of you, this is your first church experience you've ever had. So like what I'm teaching you is just the order in which you're experiencing the Bible, which means we're kind of out of order, right? And so I'm trying to give you that overview. One of the cool things about the Bible is that it's, an, it's a story that ultimately points to Jesus. And I'll show you again that toward the end of the sermon here. But this is First and Second Samuel together. Uh, in chapters 1 through 7, you have the story of Hannah and her desperate plea for her son named Samuel. The fall of the priest Eli. There's these chapters about the Ark of the Covenant, which is something you remember if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Some very interesting texts in there that we'll look at. The text then moves to be about Saul, about Israel's request for a king. There's Saul's rise to power. But then what's interesting is when, they, when faced by a giant named Goliath, Saul fails and David succeeds, which initiates Saul's decline and David's rise to power. And I'll show you that in a second. David is chased around. Even though David is anointed as the king, he does not sit on the throne for a little while. He has to run away from Saul um, and then in the beginning of 2 Samuel, he mourns Saul's death, becomes the king, um, rapes a woman named Bathsheba, and covers it up by murdering her husband. His son Absalom almost takes the kingdom away from him, and by the end of, the, by the end of 2 Samuel, David, who is pictured throughout the narrative as this mighty and godly man of integrity, is kind of weak and failing and falling apart. So that the last four chapters of the book really are about David's weakness contrasted with these mighty men, uh, a guy that goes down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day, um, and then David's failure. Now, what's interesting about the way the flow of the, the books work is in 8 through 31, we see the rise and fall of Saul. I'd use a highlighter, so it's a little shaky line, but you see the rise and fall of Saul. And as Saul is falling, David is rising, but even David eventually collapses because he's, you know, a lot of the parts of 1 Samuel that have to do with David are the Lord sanctifying his pride out of him. But his pride returns toward the end of 2 Samuel to the point where David's failure at the end of the book is total and flagrant disobedience to the Lord's commands because of his arrogance. But that's how the book works. The book concerns itself with three major characters. There's a wide cast of characters. A, a lot of real, there's this really beautiful story about a woman named Abigail toward the end of 1 Samuel. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because Abigail's kind of the only person you can find in that section that has any, like, any brains between her two ears whatsoever. And all of the men, including David, are kind of being stupid. Um, but you have the prophet Samuel uh, who has integrity and character and spiritual influence unlike that which has been seen since Moses. Uh, and Samuel's integrity and character are absolutely vital to leading God's people through the turbulent time of setting up the monarchy you have King Saul, who is Israel's first king, uh, but Saul has no heart for the Lord. And by 1 Samuel 15, uh, he's barely king for about five or six chapters before the Lord outright rejects his kingship. And Saul eventually ends his reign by his own hand. Um, but then you have King David. King David, I mean, there's some key figures in the Old Testament. Moses is one. Um, Elijah is one, David is another. Uh, David is, because of his obedience, uh, promised an everlasting covenant. One of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. What's interesting, the book of First Kings, which First and Second Kings, which follows First and Second Samuel, all of the kings in those books are measured against David. A good king is like David. A bad king is unlike David. 
David is a man after God's own heart, the text says, um, even though he's kind of a mess at various points. And David's rule is realized and reaches its climax in Jesus, who is called the son of David, the son of David. The gospel writers are trying to show that Jesus is the king which David was promised so many centuries before. These are some of our key figures. I want to make sure I'm saying everything I wanted to say about David. What's interesting about reading the Old Testament, I think a lot of people are intimidated by it because it's long-winded. It's rather vague. If you read like the New Testament, go read the book of Romans. Go read the book of Galatians. You may not fully understand it, but at least it's Paul's being pretty clear. Paul will say, don't do this, do that, be like this, stop doing this. It's kind of nice. You get in the Old Testament, it's these long stories of people whose names are hard to pronounce, and we're not sure exactly what's going on. But the reason that the Hebrew writer does this, and the Hebrew writer is being no less direct or instructive than Paul is. They're just using a different kind of way of doing it. In fact, what you see in the Old Testament narrative is the narrator is holding up character after character after character after character as a mirror. So when the text holds Saul up in his failings, it doesn't say, don't be like Saul. It implies it, for sure. It implies it. But instead of saying, don't be like Saul, it holds it up as a mirror so that we can see, do I see my face in Saul's face? Do I see my heart in Saul's heart? When it says that David has a heart after God, is that my heart or not? Is that my face in David's face? When, when there's the story of Abigail and her foolish husband, Nabal, am I like Nabal or am I like Abigail? And how do I know? It, you remember those choose-your-own-adventure books that we read in the library? That's what the Old Testament narrative does. It, it invites us into the story. It invites us into the story and asks, if you were there, if you were these people, what, how would you respond? Would you respond like Saul? Would you respond like David? It, 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 the, the text is never once in First and Second Samuel will it say, be like David or be like Saul. It won't. Uh, Robert Alter, who is a really prestigious Hebrew scholar, says that the Hebrew writer practices what's called narrative reticence. Narrative reticence, that it that the author is hesitant to ascribe motive outrightly, but does it by implication. Which is why we need to, as one of my professors at Moody used to say, learn to read the Bible literally, and, but more important than that, literarily. We need to read the Bible as literature. Robert Alter says, the religious vision of the Bible is given depth and subtlety Precisely because, precisely by being conveyed through the most sophisticated resources of prose fiction. Individual characters are surrounded by multiple ironies, artfully etched in their imperfections as well as in their strengths. This leads us again and again to ponder the complexities of motive and ambiguities of character, because these are the essential aspects of the Bible's vision of man, created by God, enjoying or suffering all the consequences of human freedom created by God, enjoying or suffering all the consequences of human freedom. All of the people that we're about to encounter over these two years in First and Second Samuel are held up to us as a mirror. When Saul disobeys the outright command of the Lord, but does it with a veneer of religiosity, is that me? Do I baptize my disobedience with Christian language? Is that me? When David covers up his own sin, 
aggressively and deceitfully, is that me? When Abigail is wise and thoughtful and hospitable, is that me? It's held up as mirrors. What I didn't show you at the start was that the books of Samuel are bracketed by two poems or songs. You've got Hannah's song in chapter 2, which we'll get to, and then David's song in chapter 22 and 23 of 2 Samuel. And the, the songs, the poems, are actually very interrelated. They share some themes. And this is purposeful on the Hebrew author's part to bracket the whole narrative with poems that express themes that we see throughout the book over and over again. So you have Hannah singing a song. If you were here last week, you remember Hannah has been barren. She prays to the Lord. The Lord gives her a son. She, she dedicates that child to the Lord. By the way, I, I had a conversation this week that they said Hannah was a bad mother who abandoned her child. To, who abandoned her child. That, that's not what's happening, okay? Hannah is making a remarkable sign of faith by dedicating her child to the Lord, uh, and she's actually a very good mother for that, not a bad one. Um, Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord, and when she gets to the temple or the tabernacle and brings him there for the first time to leave him with Eli the priest, she sings a song. And in, those, in that song are themes that are carried through the entire narrative, which is why we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and look at uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11 while we do this. So Hannah has brought Samuel to the tabernacle for the first time. And it says that she prayed and said, but it also sounds like she sang, if you ask me. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes rich and makes poor. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt in the power of his anointed. After Hannah sings, it says, Then Elkanah, her husband, went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We're going to look at that more closely next week. One commentator says, The object of Hannah's delight is neither herself, but she has overcome the disgrace of barrenness, nor her son, Instead, it is the Lord who is the source of both her son and her happy circumstance. I think it's easy when we have sought the Lord for something and he delivers us to make an idol of our happiness or an idol of that which he has given us and to miss the Lord's provision. Hannah's song is all about the Lord. 
Hannah's song is about the Lord as creator, the Lord as life giver, the Lord as the exalter, the protector, the judge, the strength giver. And throughout this poem, there are three themes highlighted. Three themes, intervention and reversal, intervention and reversal, humility and pride, and messianic kingdom. And I want to look at each one of these just for a few minutes before we're done. Because these themes we'll see over and over again and over and over again throughout the whole book. So this first thing of, of intervention and reversal, verses 7 and 8 say, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Do you see that? How the Lord intervenes and reverses things. He takes the poor and makes them rich. He takes the rich and makes them poor. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is, this is about the kings. This is about Saul and David. Saul is out looking for his father's donkey when he is anointed king. David is out shepherding his father's sheep, and they are lifted from this place of obscurity into kingship. But these are not the only reversals that we see in the text. Verse 4 says the bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble bind on strength. Verse 5 speaks of hunger. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. It says the barren has borne seven but you as many children is forlorn. And then of most striking of all, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Over and over again throughout this poem, Hannah is praising God for his ability to intervene in human circumstances and reverse them. To intervene in human circumstances and reverse them, whether barren or poor or needy or hungry or at war. Most notably, to intervene and reverse life and death. There are so many times where David is so close to death in First and Second Samuel. And at this time, and we'll show you this, a lot of the Psalms are written concurrently as David is experiencing these things. And very often he praises God for plucking him back from death. We see this reversal all the time. All of these specific cases of transformation are worked by Yahweh. They are worked by his power to transform and his willingness to intervene. Let me say that again. It's about his ability to transform and his willingness to do so. His ability to intervene and his willingness to intervene. Which, what I'm saying to you today, church, be encouraged. There is no circumstance in which you find yourself that you are powerless. There is no, let me, actually that's wrong, let me correct that. There is no circumstance in which God is powerless. Remember last week she praised him as the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, who has infinite resources of power and might to be brought to bear on his, our behalf. There is no circumstance in which God is powerless and no circumstance in which God cannot intervene and totally turn around your circumstances in the drop of a hat, and why God waits to do it when he does it, and why God decides now, why four years of infertility and then Jack, I don't know. All I know is that God is never powerless to intervene and reverse our circumstances, and bearing that in mind, we see that next theme of pride and humility so clearly. Because if at any moment God can intervene in my circumstances— if at any moment God could reverse my fate for good or for bad, I had best walk with the Lord in tremendous humility. I had best walk with the Lord in tremendous humility. Because God can intervene and reverse my fate or your fate at any moment. It means that I am not the master of my destiny. It means that I am not self-made. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. Moses says, it is he who causes you to be successful. It is he who causes you to be successful. The danger is this. Prideful people, the proud, forget that everything they have comes from the Lord. Everything they have comes from the Lord's hand, and he can take just as easily as he gives. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job says. The humble recognize the Lord's guiding presence. The humble recognize the Lord's guiding presence. They trust in his timing and grace. This is why Hannah says, let not arrogance come from your mouth. This is why she says, it is not by might that we prevail. And Paul borrows this and says, not by might, but by the Spirit. Not by might, but by the Spirit. What we see in the life of Saul is that he is so prideful. He is so arrogant that God cannot help but oppose him. And David, in his early years, is no less arrogant. But through his time in the wilderness, the wilderness being the place that we all learn everything, through his time in the wilderness, God humbles David and is able to use him and bestows on him an everlasting covenant, one of the highest high points in all of the Old Testament. And throughout the text, we're going to see God oppose proud Nabal, proud Michal, but give grace to humble Abigail. Give grace to humble Nathan, the prophet, who goes to, Jesus, who goes to David and says, you are the man. All of this reminds us of what Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the, that, that could right there be a summary of all of First and Second Samuel. Whoever exalts himself or herself will be humbled. Whoever humbles herself will be exalted. Proverbs says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. C.S. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It is a posture in which yourself comes to mind less and less. Your needs come to mind less and less so that we are set free to put others' needs ahead of ours. Andrew Murray, this is going to be really small because Kyle didn't do it right, um, has this quote. He says, yeah, good luck reading that. Uh, it says, here is, the, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment... God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. Here is the secret to a higher life, down and lower down. Because as water fills the lowest place, so when God finds a man abased and humbled, his glory and power are given. Humility. Pride and humility over and over again. Finally, this theme of, of messianic kingdom Messiah is a Hebrew word that just means anointed one. Anointed one. The final theme is this messianic king. The whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel is designed to create an expectation in those who heard it and in us, an expectation for a king who is like David but better. A king who is like David but better. It is book designed to stir in us a longing and expectation for the day that Jesus the King rules and reigns forever. 
Hannah sings this in, in verse 10. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. Here's what's weird about this. Hannah sings this. There is no king in Israel at this time, and there won't be a king in Israel for two generations. Hannah's words, Hannah's song, are prophetic to the time that Saul and David rise up, but it is also prophetic, looking forward to a king who is yet to come, a king who will rule and reign in righteousness forever. And that king is King Jesus, son of David. His royal rule is marked by care for the poor and the needy and the hungry and the barren, just like it is prophesied here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And to Israel's surprise and to ours, Jesus does not come to conquer, but to die. So as to set us free from our greatest oppressor, the wickedness of our hearts. Governments, in Jesus' eyes, are easy to overthrow. The sin in our hearts is a little harder to work with. Uh, It's super interesting. The first century Christian community... The early Christians read 1 Samuel chapter 2, read this poem, and they said to themselves, oh, this is about Jesus. They saw this and they said, oh, this is about Jesus. These phrases, his king, his anointed. They said, oh, this was all that time pointing forward to Jesus in his ministry. And Mary in Luke chapter 2, when she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus, she sings what's called the Magnificat. And if you go home and read that, here's your bonus homework, it is almost word for word Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. It is almost word for word. This is why on some level actually the Bibles can be easy to read because it's just repeating the same things over and over again. Mary is is pointed out as a new Hannah who is about to give birth to a deliverer, right? The whole Bible is this unified story who is pointing, that points to Jesus. And First and Second Samuel function to increase our expectation for the rule and reign of Jesus. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Jesus will sit on his throne. And at that point, the, he will fulfill the promise that Hannah sings of. The Lord kills and brings to life. He will bring down to Sheol and raise up. There will, the, scripture says that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will raise We are looking forward in this book. As you're reading this book, it's intended to stir in you a hunger and a thirst for when Jesus finally appears in glory to become our true king. A friend of mine in her senior year of high school when I was a freshman, um, she listened to that song, You Spin Me Right Round Baby. Not the new one, the old 80s one. Every single morning of her senior year of high school on blast. You'd go walking in from the parking lot, and there she was doing this in the car every single day of her senior year, right? And then she'd walk into school. You're going to start to feel that way as we study First and Second Samuel together, because you're going to see these themes on repeat all the time. I mean, next week, we're going to look at the comparison and contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli, and it's all about intervention and reversal and pride and humility. That's all it's about. That's all it's about. It's going to be on repeat over and over again. But all of these themes underpin a story about the God who is competing with lesser kings and lesser loves for your heart and for my heart. Because here's the reality. I like God to be the king of my heart when convenient to me. I like it when God is the king of my heart when it is convenient for me. And the rest of the time, I don't mind it when security or success or other things are the king of my heart. 
Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer said in a podcast recently, we all want the kingdom without the king. This book, First and Second Samuel, while it reports outward behavior and actions, is ultimately about the inner world of the heart, the inner world of motive and intention. That's what God cares about in this book. That's why one of my favorite verses for all of this, uh, that's the purpose again, is this little verse in 2-3, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. This is echoed in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord says, The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's all about inward motive and intention. So a few encouragements. First of all, the only person that you have to please in this life is the Lord. The only person that you have to please in this life is the Lord. A lot of us find ourselves in situations where you have to choose between pleasing the Lord and pleasing someone else. Saul and David find themselves in this position over and over and over again. They handle each instance with relative failure or success, but you do not exist to please your boss. You do not exist to please your spouse. You do not exist to please your parents. You do not exist to please your kids. I, as your pastor, do not exist to please you. And if you're uncomfortable with that, let me point you to a dozen churches in our area that do do that. You play to an audience of one. You play to an audience of one. The only opinion that matters is the opinion of the Lord. Which, by the way, I think is very freeing because that means you are set free from the pressure of conforming. As a lifelong holder, as President Josiah Bartlett says in the West Wing, as a lifelong holder of minority opinions, I appreciate this. Paul says, am I now setting out to serve people, to please people, or please the Lord? For if I'm pleasing people, I am not serving the Lord. You only need to please the Lord. Second, get your eyes off of other people's papers and onto your own. Remember when you were taking a test? And the teacher said, eyes on your own papers, please. Here's what I mean by this. Um, no knowledge of human personality, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, no amount of psychological training can give you total insight into people's lives. Uh, our church is pretty excited about the Enneagram, and if you ever forget, just remember that I am your dealer. I, I was the one that created that addiction in you. But no under, amount of understanding of a person's Enneagram type can give you with any, any estimable close to accuracy sense of what go, is going on in another person's life. When you say they do X for such and such a reason, you are probably wrong. Because the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. This is me repenting publicly. When we say they do X because of such and such a motive, you're probably wrong. And even if you get it right, what you have effectively done is pushed the Lord out of his seat and sat on his. It says, for the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And when I say Jenna does this thing because of this reason, when I say young Dan does this thing because of this thing, I'm saying, hang on, God, I've got it. 
that is not my place. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Last but not least, the Lord's knowing and seeing of you. The Lord's knowing and seeing of you. It it could be scary to think of this, but this is why I love this quote by Tim Keller where he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything because it liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial, and to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. And the Lord, who is a God of knowledge, knows you and loves you perfectly. He weighs your heart, he sees you, he loves you, and you can walk freely knowing him. The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him, actions are weighed. That is First and Second Samuel. And I'm excited to journey through it together with you. Let's pray. Lord, we, know, we recognize that you know us and love us and see us, that you do so perfectly. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the freedom that comes from pleasing only you, from being accountable only to you. And we pray for some grace and some presence, some grace and some presence as we humble ourselves before you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our King Jesus does the unthinkable. He comes to capture our hearts back from sin, the flesh, and the devil. And he does it through a surprising way. He conquers by being crushed. He reigns out of emptiness. And in so doing... And in so doing, he gives us life and wholeness and that which our hearts have always longed for. And this King Jesus invites you to his feast table today. He invites you to his feast table today. And so the way that we receive communion at Regen is simple. You will receive a piece of the bread. You dip it in the cup. You taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, I need three people actually four people to help me. Okay. Jairus, great. And Jen, and Missy, and one more. Zachary Byler. You're going to bread. You're going to bread. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would pour out your, yourself on this gift of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, that you might be today the king of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open.
Brothers, I may, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So then know with certainty that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified this. This is the name that is so powerful, this Jesus of ours, son of David. I'm super excited to be doing this with you. I love you. Maybe see you this afternoon. Peace.